Thank you. Well, as Tad said, uh, my name's Tanyan, and I'm one of the pastoral residents here. My wife, Lindsay, and I uh, both got baptized here in 2016, and we've just been so blessed by your love, your encouragement, your correction, and your fellowship as we've grown up in Christ here. So thank you. Um, this morning, it's my honor and joy to conclude our Jesus on Money series with a, a parable from the Gospel of Luke. In our passage, we'll find Jesus once again addressing our hearts in relation to wealth, to money, and possessions. So far in our series, we've seen that our use of money can reveal the genuineness of our repentance, that treasuring God leads us to leverage money and possessions for spiritual gains, and that as we trust in God our Father as our faithful provider, we can relinquish worry about our physical needs. This morning, our passage will help us understand how our thoughts and feelings about not only money, but about the very substance and purpose of our lives will either enable us to be rich toward God or doom us to foolishly hoard for ourselves and thus waste our lives. Our passage this morning is Luke 12, 13 to 21. You can turn there in your Bibles now, and if you don't have one, there should be a blue Bible under the seat in front of you. If you pick that one up and turn to page 508, you'll find our passage there. Again, that's 508 on the blue Bibles under the chair. As we begin our time today, we'll see a request and a rebuke. That is, a man asks Jesus for a favor, but Jesus denies his request and corrects him. Let's look together at the request and the rebuke in Luke 12, 13 to 15. This is God's word. Someone in the crowd said to him, that's Jesus, teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me. But he said to him, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? And he said to them, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In verse 13, Luke only tells us that this man is someone from the crowd. So we don't know much about him unless we've read um, the rest of Luke 12 up to this point. We don't really know the situation. So give me just two minutes so I can summarize what's going on leading up to this point and we'll better understand the setting of Jesus' exchange with this man. After leaving a tense dinner conversation at a Pharisee's house, in which Jesus openly condemned the religious leaders for leading the people astray, Luke 12:1 tells us that so many thousands of the people had gathered together that they were trampling one another. And Jesus began to speak to his disciples first. Now, Imagine the scene with me. It's like the doors have opened on Black Friday and people are climbing over each other. And Jesus, he's actually already inside the store. He's at the back where all the good deals are. And ignoring the crowd that's rushing towards him, he's calmly speaking to his disciples about selflessly following him with God's help. Now, it's as Jesus is teaching his disciples that one man breaks through to the front of the crowd like a crazed shopper who has pushed, shoved, trampled, and scrambled to the front, he grabs the last 60-inch flat-screen TV. He claims 
what he's there for. Teacher, tell my brother to divide the inheritance with me, he shouts. Now, it wouldn't have been surprising for a Jewish man at this time to approach a rabbi like Jesus with a question about Old Testament inheritance law, seeking help from an expert in the scriptures. But the manner in which this man approaches Jesus is surprising in a number of ways. First, it's ironic that he comes upon Jesus teaching his disciples about selflessly following him only to make this selfish demand. Second, this man must have put out tremendous effort to scramble and trample his way to the front of the crowd and all of that effort for what? To demand selfishly of Jesus. And thirdly, though he calls Jesus teacher, he doesn't ask him a question. He doesn't ask Jesus, Jesus, please help arbitrate this inheritance dispute with my brother. No, rather he tells Jesus what judgment he wants pronounced. He doesn't ask Jesus to judge rightly. He just tells Jesus to command his brother to give him a bigger piece of the pie. In this man's mind, he deserved and needed more of the inheritance. It consumed him and drove him so completely that he trampled over others to reach Jesus, only to demand that he be given a larger share of wealth. Brothers and sisters, don't miss this. If our primary drive in life is to get more and more until we have all we think we need and deserve and want, we'll be just like this man. We'll even trample over others and if we come face to face with God and his commands in his word to selflessly follow him, we'll just demand from God that he gives us what we think we're owed. Jesus perceives this disposition in the man's heart and responds, man, who made me a judge or arbitrator over you? Jesus' response is a little ironic because he is God and he is indeed the final and eternal judge. But that's not exactly the kind of judge he's talking about here. And that fact emphasizes his point. You see, as the man requests temporary earthly wealth, Jesus refuses to participate in the dispute because he came to deal with eternal spiritual matters. Judge Jesus is not Judge Judy. He didn't come to settle disputes between brothers over their father's estate. He came to settle debts that his brothers and sisters owe their heavenly father. With this in mind, Jesus turns from the man and turns to the whole crowd, saying, take care and be on your guard against all covetousness, for one's life does not consist in the abundance of his possessions. In light of this man's actions and what they've revealed about his heart, Jesus offers a warning. And his warning consists of two commands and a reason. The first command is take care or pay attention to your heart and give heed to it. The second command is be on your guard against all covetousness. In other words, Jesus is saying, pay attention to your own heart's tendencies to covet and be on guard against the covetousness that will inevitably attempt to penetrate your heart's defenses. 
And in the original language, these commands are written as ongoing actions. Jesus is saying, do these and don't stop doing them. Take care and keep taking care. Be on guard and stay on guard. The way he commands these actions tells us that they were for more than just the original situation. They weren't just for this one interaction with the man. And even for us today, they're still in effect. But why should we continually take care and be on guard? Jesus gives us a reason. He tells us that we must guard our hearts from becoming like the man's from being consumed and driven by a desire to get more and more at any cost because one's life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions. And perhaps that language sounds a little odd to us when he says consists in. We're usually used to hearing most of the time consists of, and that's what we say, that's the preposition we normally use with it. The two phrases are actually a little different though, and to say consists in is an accurate and helpful translation that gets us to Jesus' meaning. To say that something consists in means that you're listing the essential component, the soul-sustaining factor, the primary source of identity and the purpose and reason for which something exists. On the other hand, to say what something consists of is simply to list its components. An example might help. Consider with me one of God's gifts to the world, the BLT. The BLT consists of bacon, lettuce, tomato, and some kind of bread. Those are its components. But what does a BLT consist in? The bacon. Without the bacon, a BLT is nothing. <laughs> the BLT exists by and for the bacon. The BLT consists in bacon. Now, it's a silly example, but it demonstrates the point that to say consists in means the primary, most important factor. So when Jesus is saying life does not consist in the abundance of one's possessions, he's not saying life doesn't include stuff. Clearly, stuff is part of life, but it's not the most important thing. He's saying that life is not primarily sustained by lots of stuff. Acquiring more and more and more money and more and more things won't satisfy us or make us feel complete. We can't find who we are and what we were made for through purchases or through savings. We don't exist to see how lucrative our investment portfolios can become. Endlessly accumulating wealth cannot sustain life. It cannot give us identity, and it cannot provide us with purpose. But so far, Jesus has only told us what life does not consist in. That's somewhat helpful, but it leaves us vulnerable to choose something else wrong to center our lives on. So we're left with the question, what does life consist in? What? does life consist in? To answer this question and further explain his point, Jesus tells a parable, a short fictional story that communicates true spiritual realities. Follow along with me starting in verse 16. 
And he, Jesus, told them a parable, saying, The land of a rich man produced plentifully. And he thought to himself, What shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, Soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, Fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. In case anyone in the crowd was skeptical about the two commands and the reason Jesus gave back in verse 15, he tells a story about a rich man. A rich man who finds himself in the opposite position of the man who had burst through the crowd demanding more of the inheritance. That man thought he didn't have enough and he was consumed with getting more. In Jesus' parable, on the other hand, the main character is a rich man who already has more than enough and suddenly finds himself with more than he had expected or planned for. You see, Jesus astutely chooses a main character who is exactly what the man from the crowd wants to be and aspires to be. That man wants the inheritance and he wants the wealth that he can then produce from it. The parable is about a man who already has wealth and property and that wealth and property produces more wealth and abundance. Do you see what Jesus is doing? He sets up the parable to say to those with covetousness in their hearts, let me show you what will happen if you actually pursue all that you want. Let me show you what happens when you live like life consists in the abundance of possessions and you do manage to get what you're seeking. So the parable starts with this rich man and his dilemma. His land has produced more plentifully than he had expected, so much so that he has no room to store the crops. He's run out of fridge space, if you will. So he asks himself, what shall I do? He can't just leave the crops sitting around. They'll either be eaten by wild animals, they'll be stolen, or they'll just rot. So he has to do something with his excessive wealth. But what to do? Then he has a stroke of genius. He's going to upgrade the size of his storage unit. He's going to tear down his barns and build larger ones in which he can store all his grain and all his goods. But do you see what's happened? This man was already rich. He already had more than enough. This man was already where the inheritance requester from the crowd wanted to be. And when he got more wealth, the only solution he could Im imagine was to find a way to keep more wealth. Brothers and sisters, the covetous heart can see no answer and no purpose for wealth other than to continually gather and accumulate more for itself. The covetous heart can see no answer and no purpose for wealth other than to continually gather and accumulate more for itself. Well, 
After the rich man had resolved to build larger barns so that he could keep and store up more wealth, he dreams about what he expects it will be like to have so much stored up. Verse 19 tells us that the man expects many years of enjoyable ease. He's expecting, we could say, an early retirement. He won't have to work. He won't have to worry. He can just relax, eat, drink, and enjoy the good life. Now, for many of us today, we may be tempted to think that this parable doesn't apply to us. We look at our savings, our possessions, our investments, and think, gee, I don't even have one barn full. This passage is for people who have more than me. There's no way I'd ever have that much money and wealth. No way I'd ever have so much that I couldn't think what to do with it or have somewhere to put it. But brothers and sisters, though the language of barns is maybe a bit foreign to us city dwellers in 2023, Jesus' point is no less applicable. And though the man in the parable is rich beyond what many of us can imagine, don't forget the man from the crowd who prompted this teaching. He did not have a mountain of riches. He wanted more of his father's estate, and he was desperate enough to risk a crowd of thousands trampling each other to get to Jesus and make his demand. This parable is for all of us, whether we consider ourselves rich or poor. The man in the parable desired to accumulate more and more wealth for his own ease. And brothers and sisters, we are all tempted to do the same today. Maybe you're in the highest paying job you've ever had in your life, and you're making more than you ever imagined you would. Do you take all your excess and max out your retirement contributions, hoping primarily in an early and easy retirement? Or maybe you're a recent college grad and you have your first real job. Do you find yourself dreaming about and purchasing all the things that you couldn't before? Or maybe you're barely making enough to get by. Do you find your mind and heart preoccupied with dreaming about what life would be like with more money? Whether we have a lot or a little, our hearts are inclined to be like the man's, desiring more and more for ourselves, for our ease, and for our luxury. Returning to the parable now, What's perhaps most striking about the man is that he speaks to his own soul, and he tells his soul that the future is looking good. This man has accumulated much and expects spiritual satisfaction. He expects his life to be fulfilled and complete in his gathered wealth. He comforts his soul with what he stored up and prepared for himself. But God is about to crash the party and reveal to the rich man the real outcome of his endeavors. And it won't be what he had expected and hoped for. Look again at verse 20. But God said to the man, Fool, this night your soul is required of you, and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? God calls the man a fool because his covetous heart had caused him to miss reality. His covetous heart has caused him to see and believe and live by a lie. 
the goods and wealth he had stored up, in which he had placed his soul's hope, all of that wealth is left behind for some unknown person to take possession of. And the soul which he had been comforting with the promise of enjoyment and ease, that soul is now required of him by God. Brothers and sisters, don't be fools. None of us can take our stuff or our money with us when we die. And none of us can avoid death. Unless Jesus comes back first, God will one day require your soul of you. And you'll leave behind all your money and all your earthly possessions. All the comfort and ease and pleasure that money and possessions have given will evaporate in an instant when death comes and your body gives up your soul. It is a tragic stupidity to live life for something that won't last. In recording this interaction between the man and Jesus, Luke tells the readers of his gospel this, wealth is temporary and God is eternal, so it is foolish to neglect God and live to amass wealth. Wealth is temporary and God is eternal, so it is foolish to neglect God and live to amass wealth. Psalm 49 similarly declares the foolishness of placing hope in money and possessions and puts it more eloquently than I can. Verses 7 and 10 will be, 7 through 10, sorry, will be on the screen. The psalmist writes this, Truly, no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. For the ransom of their life is costly and can never suffice, that he should live on forever and never see the pit. For he sees that even the wise die. The fool and the stupid alike must perish and leave their wealth to others. Both the wise and the foolish will leave everything behind when they die. And not a single one of us, not even Jeff Bezos or Elon Musk, can give to God the price of his life. No man can ransom another. No amount of wealth in the world is enough to escape the death that will separate us from all of our earthly treasures. Don't be a fool. Your life does not consist in the abundance of your possessions. After this dramatic twist in the parable that reverses the man's expectations, Jesus gives us a short summary statement and a hint at a wise alternative. Look again at verse 21. Jesus says, so is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. So we see from this sentence that if it's foolish to do what the rich man did, it's wise, the wise alternative is to be rich toward God. But how can we be rich toward God? Well, if you think back and remember that before the parable, Jesus warned us against a covetous heart and told us that life does not consist in the abundance of possessions. And before looking at the parable, we asked, well, then what does life consist in? And the answer to that question is our key here. You see, when we know and believe and remember what life truly consists in, we will have a heart that is able to guard against covetousness, a heart that is able to be rich toward God. 
Let's look more closely at the parable, and we'll find the answer to that question of what life consists in in two parts. The first part we'll find if we go back to the very first sentence of the parable. Verse 16 says, the land of a rich man produced plentifully. Jesus is a master teacher. Nothing he says is accidental. Notice that Jesus does not say a rich man produced plentifully from his land, or even a rich man worked his land and it produced plentifully. No. Jesus intentionally makes the land the subject and the actor in what he's saying in order to de-emphasize the man's role. The land produces, not the man. Jesus gives the man no credit for his prosperity. And by implication, if the man does not get credit for his plentiful produce, then who does? The land? No, certainly not. Jesus is teaching here. He wouldn't promote a pagan idea like the land getting credit. No, by implication, God gets the credit. As Chuck shared last week, God knows and cares for our needs. Whether he provides plentifully or gives us just the bare essentials, everything we have is from his hand. Now, don't hear Jesus wrongly and think that he's saying that the man didn't work or that we shouldn't work for our wages. That's not his point here. Scripture clearly teaches that work is good and that it's God's normal means of providing for those who are physically able to work. But it's still God who provides in his mercy. He gives money and food and clothing and shelter to us without taking anything from us as payment. Scripture tells us, the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. He owns everything. We can't pay him back with anything. So even though we work for a paycheck, that paycheck is a free gift from God's hand in the sense that we give him and can give him nothing in return for it. The land produces by God's grace. We receive money for our labor by God's grace. We can purchase food by God's grace. We wake up, our hearts beat, we breathe air, our brains continue to function, all by God's common grace to all people. So in a purely physical and material and survival sense, life is essentially made up of and about God's grace. Even physical life consists in God's grace. But there's more to life than surviving. And the end of the parable helps us to see what spiritual life and purpose consist in. If you look again at verse 20, you'll remember that God required the rich man's soul. You see, there's a spiritual reality that extends beyond this life with which our wealth cannot help us. And yet, that spiritual aspect of life is very real. And someday, we will all face it completely with any pretense that our wealth gave us stripped away. We will either face it as fools who hoarded for ourselves or as the wise who were rich toward God. If spiritual life does not consist in wealth, then what does it consist in? Well, as we saw in Psalm 49, no one can give God the ransom for a life. 
But if we look a little further in that psalm, we'll see who can give a ransom. Here are verses 14 and 15. The psalmist begins by speaking about those who hope in wealth and says this, like sheep, they are appointed for shale. Death shall be their shepherd, and the upright shall rule over them in the morning. Their form shall be consumed in shale with no place to dwell. But God will ransom my soul from the power of shale, for he will receive me. The psalmist says that those who think life consists in wealth will find themselves lost and consumed in shale, the place of the dead. But the psalmist trusts in God and says that God will ransom his soul from the power of shale, that is, from death. Man cannot ransom a life, but God can ransom our souls from death when he receives us as his own. How does he do this? Well, on our own merits, none of us can be received as his own. That's because every one of us has a heart set on loving and serving and desiring our own ways above God. We have a dead heart. It's dead in the sense that it's set on loyalty to anything but God and that it's bent on rebelling against him. This is what the Bible calls sin. We're all born with it and we can do nothing to change it. And it causes us every day to think thoughts to harbor and entertain desires, and to take actions that disobey and dishonor the God who created us, the God who owns us, the God who sustains us. And God declared at creation that the penalty for sin would be death, both the end of this physical life and an eternal spiritual death in which sinners are separated from him and from all that is good forever. Even the best of us, are hopelessly doomed because God, being holy and just, cannot receive sinners and must punish their sins. But God is also loving. And in his holy love, he made a way to both satisfy the need for just punishment and to provide a way of escape for sinners. God himself in the person of Jesus has accomplished this for us. Being God, he lived the perfect, sinless life that we should have. His heart was pure, and so was his entire life. He lived the life of one who could be received by God. But instead of claiming his reward for the perfect life and perfect obedience, perfect love toward God, he willingly took on himself the sin and the punishment of all who would believe in him. He was crucified and experienced the full wrath of God spiritually as he died physically in the place of sinners, bearing our sin. But on the third day, he rose again, showing that his payment was sufficient. Now all who believe in and follow him receive his righteousness as their own, as he took our sins on the cross. And God now looks on all those who have been saved by Jesus by believing in him. And he sees Jesus' righteousness instead of our sin. And he receives us as his own and calls us his children. And as his blood-bought children, he will surely ransom our souls from the power of Sheol. He will ransom us from death forever. Spiritual life 
consists in God's grace through Jesus Christ. If you've joined us this morning and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, we're so glad that you're with us. Thank you for coming. Even though Jesus is addressing money and possessions in this passage, you can see how all of Scripture ultimately points to our need to be cleared of sin and declared righteous. And all of Scripture points to Jesus, God in the flesh, and his work on the cross as the solution to our predicament. This passage is no exception. If we miss what life consists in, we will find ourselves in great peril. But Jesus offers a way. Friends, if you have not trusted in Jesus, you are in the rich man's predicament. As one writer put it, even what the man thinks is most intimately his own, his soul is only on loan and can be demanded at any time. One day, sooner or later, God will require your soul from you. No amount of wealth, public service, good deeds, or intelligence can ransom your soul. But Jesus can if you repent and believe in him. To repent means to stop going one way, to turn and to go the opposite direction. It means to stop living life for yourself and your own desires, to turn to God and with his help to live for him and for his desires. Friends, turn from sin and turn to God, believing that when Jesus died and rose again, it was sufficient to take away your sin and give you a righteous standing before God. If that's something you'd like to know more about, please talk to any of the Christians around you after the service. They would love to answer your questions and tell you what it's like to follow Jesus and to be declared righteous before God. In Luke 12, 13 to 21, we see that the essential element of both our temporary physical lives and our eternal spiritual lives is God's grace. God's providence and salvation through Christ are what sustain life, what life is about, what provides purpose. You might say God's grace is the bacon in the BLT of life. And when we rightly know and continually remind ourselves that life consists in God's grace and not in wealth, we will be freed to use wealth to be rich toward God, to use money and possessions for God's church and for those in need. If Jesus in this passage negatively says, don't be a fool, avoid covetousness, life doesn't consist in amassing more and more wealth, he positively says, life consists in God's grace. Be rich toward him. Life consists in God's grace, so be rich toward him. And as we seek to be rich toward God, we remember that God has been far more rich toward us than we could ever be toward him. He gave us himself in the person of God, the Son, Jesus. He gave us new and eternal life by taking our sin on the cross and giving us righteousness. He gives us an inheritance in heaven that Peter calls imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, and in eternity, God will show us the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. Life consists 
and God's grace. So be rich toward him. Now it's essential that we get our minds and our hearts set right first if we're going to be rich toward God. And that's what this series has mostly focused on, our heart in relation to money and possessions. But as we wrap up this sermon and the series, I'd like to leave you with some practical ways to begin practicing richness toward God. You see, it's not natural for us in our sin to be rich toward God. It's a muscle that's weak and atrophied. So we need to exercise it. And as we do, we'll find that we're able to lift more weight and do more reps. We'll find that our heart is better at being rich toward God the more we practice doing so. So as we look for some practical steps in this spiritual exercise routine, let's look back at the parable. Let's look for ways that we can do the opposite of the man. And as we do, we'll find ways to begin practicing richness toward God. The first way the parable shows us we can begin practicing being rich toward God is this. When the land produces, give to God. The man in the parable thought first and only of himself when he received the blessing of material provision from God. In only three verses, he says, I, me, or my, 11 times. Instead, when you make money, give some of it to God because he's the one who gave it to you in the first place. And remember that Jesus told the parable in response to the man from the crowd who did not possess much wealth. Give regardless of how much you make. Whenever the land produces at all, it is by God's grace and his sustaining power. Now the exact method and way and amount that you do this will of course vary from person to person. But the essence is the same. When God provides any amount, think first to give some back to him. If you make money at all, give some back to God who gave it to you. Maybe that means that when you plan your monthly budget, you start by budgeting for an offering, even before you decide how much to spend on food or clothes. Maybe you decide out of every paycheck you're going to give a certain amount. Maybe you respond to raises and promotions and new jobs in your life by first giving the extra amount that you're now making back to God as an offering. However you do it, when the land produces, give to God. The second way the parable shows us we can be rich toward God is this. Don't overstuff your barns. The man in the parable prepared for his own ease and luxury, and God rebuked him for hoping in the excess and preparing only for his own enjoyment. Now, don't mishear Jesus. It's not wrong to spend or save or invest money. In fact, scripture elsewhere teaches us that with a right heart, spending, saving, those are good and wise things to do. But Jesus does say here that it is wrong to build your life on accumulating more and more and more, seeking ease and thinking that that will provide life and purpose and fulfillment. Let's do the opposite of the man. Instead of stuffing our barns so much that we have to build bigger ones, let's plan and prepare to be generous toward others. Now this means that we'll have to plan ahead and set some aside for the purpose of giving it away. 
For some of us, that might mean we need to lower our uh, standard of living, live below our means, so that we have something left over to give. For others, that might mean that we're saving less toward retirement, toward a house, toward a car, that we decrease saving towards things we want in order to bless others now. Whatever your current condition, you can exercise richness toward God by preparing and storing up money and possessions to use on others and their needs. Then, when a brother in the church is ill and loses a job, you already have money prepared and you can buy his groceries for a week. When a single mom can't afford the childcare while she works, you can help her out while she gets on her feet. When you see a homeless person sitting outside shivering in the cold, you have money prepared and can buy them a blanket and some food. If you prepare and set some aside for others, you will be ready to be rich toward God by using what he has given you for others. Lastly, don't wait. We can be rich toward God by starting now. Don't wait. One day God will say to you, tonight your soul is required of you. Don't wait to start being rich toward God. Don't be a fool. Be wise. Begin being rich toward God today. Now, God doesn't expect you to be able to give everything all at once if you've never given before. It's okay. Pick up the two-pound dumbbell. Give a little. Then, after your muscles grow a little bit, pick up the five-pound. Give a little more. Giving is a spiritual discipline that takes practice. It may seem daunting if you're giving muscles have atrophied, but don't wait. Start today. If God has saved you, he's given you his spirit He's ready and able to help you as you repent of past failures, as you experience his forgiveness and his grace, and as he helps you and grows you in the discipline of giving. To review, how does this passage tell us to begin being rich toward God? When the land produces, give to God. Don't overstuff your barns and don't wait. Life consists in God's grace. So be rich toward him. Let's pray. Before I voice a prayer for us, please take a moment to reflect and talk with God about what he's shown you from his word this morning. Father, we come to you as a people so easily blinded to reality. We confess that this week and even this morning, we've lived as if life consists in the abundance of possessions. Lord, forgive us for our covetous hearts and help us to see the truth that life consists in your grace, shown most fully in the work of your Son, Jesus, on the cross. We pray for your rich 
We praise you for your rich love towards us, for your extravagant and scandalous mercy poured out on us in the blood of our Savior. Father, you have been richer toward us than we could ever be toward you. And as we thank you and praise you for the immeasurable riches you lavish on us in this age and that you will show us in the eternity to come, we pray that you would cause our hearts to be wise and to desire to be rich toward you. God, help us to exercise the spiritual disciplines of giving to you and to your church and to those in need. Show us where in our lives we need to repent and change. Remind us of your great mercy and forgiveness that we might move beyond our past failures. And give us strength by your spirit to exercise richness toward you. Thank you for your word and for this series as we've examined and meditated on Jesus' words about our hearts and our finances. I pray that the fruit from these four weeks would be abundant in our lives and that our increased generosity would glorify you in the present day and into eternity. It's in the precious and holy name of Jesus Christ, your son, that I pray these things. Amen.